this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green and Rob Sheffield. And 50 years ago, at the University of Leeds, The Who went on stage and played a concert that was immortalized on the album Live at Leeds, which is one of the greatest live albums of all time, at the very least. Some say it's the greatest. It's definitely one of the most amazing live documents ever made for sure. And we thought we'd use that to talk more broadly about some of the greatest live albums ever made. That was, by the way, they played that concert the same day that Black Sabbath's debut album was released. It just you know, it was a big, a very heavy day in England. But to start, we actually have Bob Pridden, who recorded Live at Leeds, was on tour with The Who for 50 years, was at every Who show for 50 years, and we have him with us. Bob, are you there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm there. Welcome. You captured this concert at Leeds, and uh, you, you were telling Andy that, as Pete wrote in his book, you had also recorded an, a, a bunch of concerts previously, and Pete told you to, to go home and listen to all of them and tell him what you, what you thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, um, he did. Uh, I, got, I think I got through about the first ten, and uh, <laughs> it, it was just mind-boggling, and thinking of it about life and a, a lot. And um, Pete said to me, did you make any notes? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he said, well, destroy them. So we did destroy them, but a few did survive because they were in Pete's, Pete's uh, studio library where he must have listened to some of them anyway. They surfaced, uh, but not many. And then after this tragic destruction of tapes of The Who in their prime they went on to play the show at Leeds and Pete was the band and Pete were all aware that they wanted to capture this show. Pete said that he tried to play more carefully and, and what was the kind of how, how much was it articulated that they wanted this to be the night that this was, they were putting a lot of hopes into this one show. Well, first of all, um, you had to take the hall into consideration. Right. And actually, uh, when we're in the afternoon, when we sort of had a bit of a, a sound check, as one would say. The uh, hall had a pretty good sound when it was empty, so that was a good start. It wasn't such a waste of time. But also, I say, by recording those shows that we did, was a lot of experimentation with uh, placing ambient mics and things like that, and that gave us an idea of how I go about it. And also, we realized that on the stage, we used to turn... The side fills, we had side fills there, and it was probably one of the first bands to have them. And we used to turn these huge WEMs, like PA speakers, facing across the stage, one each side. And uh, with Pete's guitar, you can hear the echo. And the echo's coming from what I'm adding into the PA 
and into the side fill. So it's picking up on the stage and it gave it that extra sound. And it was a very good recording. Uh, it was on eight track, which sometimes is better than having eight, 16 or 24, 32 tracks. You have to like, sort of work with what you've got and you know, be a bit careful on it. I, I don't think for one minute we had an ambience mic on it, although I have remixed some of the, uh, well, I remixed the whole of the whole show uh, later, day, a few years back. But um, with this, it just sounded great. Um, and Pete mixed it, and I was there with him at uh, Pi Studios in Marble Arts, London. And it just turned out, I think with live stuff, it's a lot, a lot of luck. And we had a good time. And this was in, a lot of people think it was recorded in sort of the cafeteria, but your memory is that actually that was where the cafeteria that we've seen yes. pictures of, that was where you set up your equipment and they were upstairs playing. Is that is that's correct? That's right. That's right. Because um, the hall itself was, I think it's reasonable. I think it might have held about a thousand people, <laughs> maybe a less. And uh, the, the one floor down was what I, you would call the cafeteria. And in those days, it was before the days of mobile studios and what have you, in a van and everything. It was really arcade. So everything was on, like, the dining tables. And it, <laughs> uh, like the tape records of flat uh, and all the equipment just and, and wired up from scratch. And so, so for someone like myself, uh, that was a bit about wiring and whatever, the first, when I first saw it, my heart sunk, you know, because... You're going to do a show and you're putting the actual gear together. It wasn't even wired. It's quite something. <laughs> and you obviously, going to every show, you witnessed a lot of evolution from The Who. What, what did you see in those? They had released Tommy. They were hitting a, an absolute peak as a live band. What did you see about their evolution You know, in, in, those, in maybe the, the three years or so leading up to 1970 in that, in that concert? Well, we well yes, well... Tommy was a huge, huge success everywhere, especially in America. After Woodstock, it just took off. And I think um, there was a lot of it in the bag, probably, what shall we do next? And it was really, I just was messing around recording the shows up with my own, messing around. I recorded Joe Cocker one night. Needless to say, he was supporting The <laughs> tape came to a sticky end. But anyway, Pete said, why don't we just record a live show? Let's do two. So we did Leeds and Hull. You don't, I expect you know the story about Hull. Um, it was a good gig, actually, and a very good hall. They played better. I think they had more fire, probably, in, them, in Leeds. But it was still a great gig. But the problem with Hull was when we put it up to play it back to check it, there, was no, there wasn't any bass on it. Right. Of course, just, that equipment was set up the same way as it was in Leeds, where it put together at the time. And I suppose... When they're monitoring, they're not monitoring from the tape, they're monitoring from the input. So they didn't know, they all saw the meter going, but it wasn't recorded. But anyway, so Pete just turned around and he said to me, let's stick up these, we'll just do these and forget that. Which in a way, probably worked well, because more attention was spent on Leeds rather than Ammon and Oren between Hull and Leeds. But anyway, <clears throat> many years on, just what I was checking things out, uh, and it could have only been about five years, six years ago. I put Hull on, we said we'll have a listen just to it. And after about six number or so, that the bass came in. <laughs> and I went, Christ, that's not too bad. We might be able to repair it. So uh, Peter, why didn't you overdub someone playing bass? Well, I didn't like that idea very much. 
because it wouldn't be what it should be. And um, and I just thought, well, hang on. We had a very, very good, sharp guy on Pro Tools. Because we we, we um, transferred over on the Pro Tools. And I just was listening. I thought, hang on. I said, we played exactly the same show in Leeds. that We, we played the same show from Leeds at Hull. So the show was identical. And I said to the, Matt, his name was, Matt Hay. I said, Matt, can you lift these first six numbers and fly it in? Well, it took him two days to do, probably longer. But, but, you, but um, you know, <laughs> with amazement, my amazement, I was amazed, it actually worked. It was dead in sync, but we had to really juggle around. So I felt, so we actually released that a few years back. So that was released live at Hull as well. So they're both out now, which is great. Yeah. And that was. We we released that in its entirety, the whole show. Now, do you prefer Live at Leeds? Is one of those strange albums where it exists in multiple formats, and it, it's kind of uh, depending on when people listen to it, they have a different version they gravitate to. the The original LP was only six tracks, and then in the further deluxe editions, more and more tracks came out. So, do yeah. you personally prefer? that very tight edit to six songs, or do you prefer one of the, the longer or full shows? I think at the time, the six tracks on the album, a lot of, I think it went down really well, and I think that, that helped. I think if you listen to two hours of it, it wouldn't have the same impact. Whether I think probably later it was mixed down for the rest of it. It was nice to have it probably for fans that really want the whole of the show, but as a, as a commercial product, you know, Six-track live album, as soon as you put it on, it batters you to death. <laughs> Do you remember any of the rationale from Pete for choosing? One thing I've heard people say is it, it's odd how it's half cover songs. Young Man Blues, Summertime Blues, Shaking All Over uh, are all, and they're all great, but it's it's slightly peculiar. Uh, do, do you remember any of the rationale from Pete on that? No, I think it, those numbers are very, very successful. And at one point we tried to um, we did i think the band went in and recorded summertime blues in the studio because everyone loved it so much they thought we'll, we'll record it in the studio but huh. it didn't have the same sort of uh guts that the live version had so it never it was never used and this was before i think live at least so it was always on the cards it'd be nice to be able to put these out because really all they wanted in the uh, record company them was uh, basically the um who tracks you know Right. And one thing that always struck me about the album is the degree to which you were able to capture the heaviness of what the Who were doing at that point in a way that up to then had not really been captured in the studio. If you listen to the studio versions of Tommy, the guitars are are not nearly as powerful and distorted and, and everything just doesn't sound as big. So was there something that could be accomplished by just setting up an A-track in a school uh, assembly room that couldn't be accomplished in the studio back then? Well, I think it's approached with their uh, on-stage setup, so it was very loud, um, and there wasn't a lot of microphones up. And also, don't forget, it's the, the chemistry of being on a stage with the audience, and it comes out in the play, and that's why. I think as soon as you see a gang of people out there watching you, the whole adrenaline flows and you begin, don't you?
How often would Keith kind of give an assessment of whether a show was good or not? Would, would Keith ever comment on, on how he felt uh, the, the quality of a show was? Um, he'd be happy. He never made much of a comment about it. Not that I know of anyway. <laughs> For some reason, that doesn't surprise me. Mm. Well, we won't keep you for much longer, but in your estimation, was, was 1970, was Live at Leeds, was that the peak of The Who as a live band, or did they get even better at some later point? I think they got better as they went along. That was a, that was like them because they had been working with them, working so much in America, and at that point, doing lots and lots of gigs, they were on top of it. And then it got better. Then it it went into I think it was certainly performance wise when you listened to Tommy, uh, not Tommy, the Quadrophenia. To me, that was the peak. They were really, I think, the hottest band in the world, and they still are, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, I just think it's uh, the energy, they chapter it always, and that's what you said earlier on, it's true. Well, that's funny because I know that one of the things that Pete always complained about was how difficult it was to deal with the backing tapes on the Quadrophenia tour. I think when when we first started it, it was quite complicated, and yeah, it was quite... uh, We went through that with um, Who's Next, which was supposed to be Lifehouse, which never came out of that. It just came out (laughs) once again a time, no album of the tracks but it should have been a whole big double album but um, we first started using tapes then which was pre-Quadrophenia so we had a lot of teething troubles and it was the first time didn't have the equipment that we had today you know it was really sort of a, it was a touch and go but we finally lost a lot of them uh, and just then used Wonkin Ford again Barbara O'Reilly and a few other tracks but then when it came to Quadrophenia We'd already captured that side of it. But on Quadrophenia, it wasn't so much playing to live tapes. We tried that. But also, it was the part of the, the trains, the audience things, you know, the pre-recorded things in between tracks. Right. We had those on what they use in um, a radio station. It's a machine called a Spotmaster. And huh. you, load them, you load up the, the tapes and just press a button and they're instant. But getting it in sync... And a live gig, it's back then, <laughs> pretty impossible. And it, it, it was easy. But I think we got over that. And now they use quite a few, like um, helpful to sound effects and what have you, which is great. But with playing with things, um, that, they've got it stuff, but we only use it for synthesizer parts, really, that we didn't have on stage. You must have been one of the first engineers and live engineers in the world to have to deal with some of these concepts to, to try to be mixing in pre-recorded tapes and synths and all sorts of things that, that no one else was doing. It certainly felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Bob Pritton, thank you so much for, for taking time to, uh, to call in. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Andrew, thank you. All right. We just talked to Bob Pritton, who recorded Live at Leeds the classic Who Live album, and we were going to use that 50th anniversary to talk more broadly about live albums. Rob Sheffield is here, Andy Green is here, and I know they have a lot of favorite live albums. And, uh, you know, there, there was a Rolling Stone list of live albums, but I don't, I don't know if that we contributed to it, so you should check that out, but we're going to be talking about kind of our own favorites. Rob, what I'm sure there's a ton, but maybe start with what, what are a couple of, of your, your absolute go-to live albums? Well, uh, sorry to bring up the Jay Giles band this early in the conversation, <laughs> but they have two of the all-time best. Huh. 
from the 70s when everybody did their live doubles. First, they did a live single, which, like Live at Leeds, it was very novel in the 70s to do a just one-disc jam-packed live album that was live full house in the tradition of live albums with terrible, goofy 70s titles. Live full house, and it's got the playing cards on the cover. Then their second one, a few years later, both recorded in Detroit, needless to say, because everybody loved to record their live albums in Detroit. Blow Your Face Out, which has <laughs> the great, like, long, like, Peter Wolf monologue to introduce Musta Got Lost. It really captures so much of the the mayhem and, and the chaos and the insanity of, of 70s live rock. Yeah, I want to dig into this a little bit more because I, uh, this was not uh, an answer I necessarily expected. D- talk about the Jay Giles band as as a live band and and what was great about them because this is for some people this has slipped off the the radar. Well, I can't imagine who, but uh, for basically like the sort of the the whole the live album as we know it was really perfected by like the seventies touring bands, the Road Warriors, where you know they would just like crank out a live album with a title with the band members posing with amps, always a live double. And that was really kind of the heyday of live albums because they were they were cheaper to make. They recycled the same material and they were profitable. So for sort of the 70s rock road warriors, which the Jay Giles band epitomize, you know, your live album, you want some, you know, sloppy, rough, raw remakes of some hits. You want some covers of some venerable oldies. You want some comical stage banter, which Peter Wolf, the Jay Giles band, never had any problem with. You want a lot of really long guitar solos, and if you're Jay Giles band, a harmonica solo showcase for Magic Dick, but not everybody had a harmonica solo. But you think about something like, you know, the Almonds, you know, Fillmore East, where it's just all these like really like long guitar epics. That's something that was perfect for a live album that was better than a studio album. Yeah, I mean, obviously the 70s were kind of the, the heyday of the live album, and more deeply... Why was that? Was it just that there were so many bands who lived on the road? Was it, what was it really? It was the heyday of live arena rock in a lot of ways. And it was the heyday of record labels saying they want an album that's every year by a band or even more frequently. You know, there was such demand on people to produce product. A live album was the easy way to fulfill terms of a contract. And, you know, not to sound rockist or or anything but it was an era in which bands kind of had to bring it live and thus were able to with major exceptions that i want to get to because there's the other (laughs) the the other aspect is the fake live album of which there are many great ones kiss alive being the most notorious in which it is very dubious whether one note (laughs) that you hear on the album was played live on stage and it doesn't matter because they're still very exciting but in general there was an expectation that you had to beyond recreate what you did in the studio live yeah in a a pre-mtv world you would gain a big audience by touring all the time and that's how many rock bands they made their name by touring so they got really good at playing concerts and they played lots of concerts that was before they got famous. So by that point, they were very strong on stage. A lot of these bands. Totally. And part of the 70s mystique of, you know, an artist that you have to see live, lots of people who had never really clicked in the studio. It was a very weird time in terms of studio production. So for people like, you know, whether it's Bob Seger or Cheap Trick or Peter Frampton, they made studio records that were not massive. And then their album 
that was live was kind of a coronation. It was sort of listen to all these people screaming for Peter Frampton, listen to all these people screaming for Cheap Trick in Japanese, all these people screaming for Peter Frampton, why are you missing out? It was exciting to listen to. Definitely like exciting with something like, do you feel like we do with Peter Frampton where he's having that conversation between the audience and his little squawk box? It's, it's kind of inspirational. Yeah, how does Frampton Comes Alive hold up? Because it's never been big for me. I'm not a huge Frampton fan, but I think it's his peak probably, right, Rob? Or how do you yeah, I love that album. It's, and it's sort of like a love letter to the form of the 70s yeah. live album. I mean, he, Peter Frampton is kind of the Petrarch of you know, the 70s live <laughs> album. What Petrarch was to the Italian sonnet, uh, Peter Frampton was to the live album where you, know, you begin a song and there's sort of the acoustic intro and people are like, yeah, and they scream because they recognize it. And then they cheer after the first line. And especially since none of these songs were hits, it's like, these are some seriously devoted Peter Frampton fans. <laughs> yeah. Like, nobody had heard of Cheap Trick in this country before they released At Budokan. And then At Budokan comes out and you hear this, like, Japanese crowd that is, you know, it sounds like they're exploding with excitement every single moment of the live show, especially when Bunny Carlos takes a drum solo. You, and you hear, it basically sounds like the entire stadium melting down. It, it was an exciting sound. It's also work very well as a kind of premature greatest hits of songs that weren't hits for all these for for Frampton for Cheap Trick and for as you said for Bob Seger and Live Bullet is an awesome example of kind of pulling together songs from albums that hadn't done right. that well into a, a, a much better package right. frankly, than had been on the album and because Seger at that point I think he was doing about 200 and 40 shows a year <laughs> it was something absolutely and you're not and, even joking no yeah. not even joking yeah. for years because he had one breakthrough hit in 1969 then it was like five years of nothing but touring in vans and he just got so damn good on stage but the albums were just kind of limp and then one live album where they captured just all of his experience all of his work all of his six billion hours and there's there's certain songs that in the uh, sort of classic rock radio pantheon work best in their uh, live versions, in yeah. part because of the subject matter. Turn the page is an amazing <laughs> example of that. It as a studio thing, it doesn't have the resonance of you know him singing about the road whilst being on the road. Yeah, totally. What what a drag to hear turn the page in the studio <laughs> version. It's like something's mis- it's like you're supposed to be you know up there on stage complaining about how hard you had to work to get there. Traveling man, the same way that song is a classic on the live bullet oh, yeah. version listen to the studio version it's like where's the crowd who's listening to him complain about this <laughs> let's do turn the page for a second You know, well, yeah, because I, well, I just want to say yeah. the one guy going yeah after the first <laughs> yeah. line, like yeah. if you don't hear that guy saying yeah, the whole thing sucks. Like it yeah. just doesn't work. I'll just say I've been to six thousand classic rock concerts, and the moment Alto Reed that he plays that sax part is the moment that a crowd <laughs> is the happiest, most excited, and just like orgasmically thrilled of anything I've ever seen. How do they usually do the spotlight when he plays that? In that he stands on the side of the stage on like a riser. And he gets in gear. When the spotlight hits, he just goes into it, and it's just like a bomb going off. Nobody enjoys being a saxophone star like <laughs> that guy. No, that's Alto Reed. <laughs> he loves it. Yes. Yeah. Now, of course, the other one that comes to mind as far as uh, you know, songs that have to be heard in their live versions is uh, Ultimate, is Jackson Brown's The Loadout. 
Uh, <laughs> another perfect complaining about being on the road song. He basically spends 15 minutes saying, you people ruined my life. You're going to go home from the show, but I'm going to be on a bus with the roadies playing card games, missing the ones we love. But of course, but it, it's uh, it's very sympathetic to the roadies. But you always imagine, you know... <laughs> Like, like the roadies who are actually cleaning up after he plays this like deeply quaveringly sympathetic song to them, and if he's like just walks past them, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, love, yeah, and he says like, "Oh, those guys working for that minimum wage." Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, Jackson, <laughs> whose idea is that? <laughs> if, if only their cruel boss. Were <laughs> yeah, exactly. Race, you know? <laughs> the man is making him load those amps. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to moving me, you know, you guys are the champs. <laughs> Also, I, did Jackson Brown invent the live album that fades out? It's got that beautiful moment like where he goes into stay and then it and he says, thank you all, and the band keeps playing and it fades out. Nobody yeah. really did fading out live <laughs> albums. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Is that real melancholy of, you know, people not realizing that they're the lucky ones? I'm being actually serious now. That you're the lucky ones who get to go home that night and that the guys on stage who you're worshiping actually have to go on a bus and be on their own. There is a melancholy to that. And I think that that's something that like uh, Springsteen wrote about in his book, that profound moment when he, I mean, he's not on tour, but he's on the road and he's, he stops at a county fair somewhere in the middle of America and he sees that these people all have a place where they live, where they stay in, and that, that's all he wants. So, you know, there is, there is something there, but yeah, Jackson probably should have given those those people a raise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, like, the Bruce Springsteen did not make a live album yes, in the yeah. 70s Transition, was yes. so mind-blowing that the guy who was most famous for his live shows yeah. was the one guy yeah. in the 70s, the one rock star and didn't do a live album. He waited till 1986 <laughs> and then botched it on some overwrought live album. Yeah, and now I was I was going to get to that. It's it's really interesting, and you know, listen, Mike Appel, the jettisoned manager who left in the course of Born to Run, and then prompted obviously a famous lawsuit. Mike Appel wanted to follow Born to Run with a live album, uh, and Bruce didn't. I think in the end, it probably isn't that consequential a decision. I mean, it's not like, but it, it's it is weird to ponder. Maybe in the end it would have been detrimental only in the sense that part of the legend of Bruce was you had to see him live and that it was only captured in bootleg and there was no official live document. And that created, even as he got more and more famous, there still was a bit of undergroundness because the best stuff was never officially available. And, you know, listen, if you listen to the 1978 shows, and I know everyone in this room has, Mm. if you listen to the 1978 shows, you listen to the the show that was uh, once bootlegged as Pièce de Résistance, if you listen to any almost any of those shows you hear any one of them could have been turned into one of the greatest live albums of the 70s yeah and in some new documents that were posted on the back streets it shows that john landau picked five markets for these radio shows and he knew they'd be bootlegged and he knew it would spread the gospel of bruce to towns they were weakened so they kind of did these five radio broadcasts as a sort of weird unofficial live album the agora 70 i mean all those 78 shows but Imagine having those tapes and just, you know, saying, yeah, I'm just going to put these aside for 30 years or so. (laughs) It's kind of, you know, that's part of like the Springsteen mystique. But there's people who are Springsteen-like were the ones who 
blew up on live albums because part of their mystique was, you know, hardworking touring guy. You listen to, you know, again, Bob Seger, you listen to the studio version of Beautiful Loser and it's really slick. It's got synthesizers. Hmm. They're trying to make a palatable radio production out of it. And it's just, the song is just, it sounds more Seeger-like when he's just belting it in front of a hometown crowd. There's a lot of great live albums, some of which, some are sort of, um, like, for example, I love the Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies is great, but what I actually prefer is the Live at Fillmore East expanded stuff. The same shows, the same tours, but not edited. Some of the, the many like recordings of that are truly, and frankly, when, uh, when someone other than Jimmy is not singing, I tend to want to uh, skip those <laughs> tracks. Uh, that's a problem. But when Jimmy's singing and when they take flight, it's some of the most astonishing rock you've ever heard in your life. And that's actually a good example of, of some, uh, there's an incredible amount of 70s live stuff that was actually released later that is so great. And then I would include a lot of the Neil Young archive stuff. Is yeah. incredible. Uh, the tonight's the night live show, even though the from the Roxy, which is, <laughs> which isn't even according to everyone who saw those tours, like was like the worst show of all those tonight's the night shows. But it's the one it's they captured. Fantastic. But I think for Neil with his live albums, I think Weld is the best from 1991. I mean, that's amazing as well for sure. But. There's, I mean, you know, the 1970 Fillmore oh, album, which is, yeah, that with, great yeah. with Danny Witten is mind blowing. Some of the best live albums of the 70s came out way after the 70s, which just shows how much fruit there was to pick yeah. from this this amazing era of live rock. Or with Bob Dylan, that's a whole other story. That the 1966 shows and the gospel shows were both released decades and decades later and are are his best tours, I think, and his best live albums. Exactly. Although I did want to talk about Before the Flood, <laughs> which which I love. It's flood, but I love it. I love it. So b- Before the Flood is the uh, 1974 uh, live album from Bob Dylan and the band. It is like cocaine. I think the the vinyl was half cocaine. You can just, you can just. There's so much cocaine in this music. It is so frantic. Some of it is borderline terrible. But the, for example, uh, most likely you'll go your your way and I'll go mine is my absolute favorite version of that song. It's psychotic. It has so much energy. It, it kind of reminds me of the the moment in Walk Hard when they they invent punk. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they take so many drugs that they invent (laughs) punk. It's a little bit legitimately like that. And for all its flaws, I love at least half of it. What's what's? Say you love me and you make it up, but you know you could be wrong. I don't like it. I think that Bob and the band were so much better before this, better after this. This was a money tour. This was a week tour. It's definitely a one-off, but it's a comedy record, basically. It's, <laughs> Maybe that's like why the, I like it. The, yeah. the part in the last waltz where Robbie Robertson says it's a goddamn impossible way of life. Like yeah. this is basically a document that proves he was right. Maybe that's what I like about it. There's a a reality to it. <laughs> no, but <laughs> perhaps on, a bit too much reality. On, on the acoustic songs, Bob is so bored. He's just going through them through the motions. Yeah, I skip those. Look, I, there's, like, there's a terrible 
live record he did in 1985, like real live, where oh, yeah. like <laughs> terrible stuff with the band, and then he has just a couple of acoustic songs and that are so so good. The best tangled up the in best blue tangled up is in blue ever. Off of real live, he wrote all new lyrics to it, and and it's better. Yes, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and 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 new chords, like and yeah. to be a teenage Dylan fan in in 1985 and hear this record and and to think. Why did he only put two acoustic songs on this and have the rest of it being, you know, like, no offense to any of the people in the band that he had playing, but, but you know, him doing these solo songs is just kind of amazing. I mean, Dylan and the Dead is considerably worse than before. The Ugh, well, that's, I mean, the, 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 that's garbage. That's probably one, not only one of the worst live albums ever released, but perhaps one of the worst albums. I don't know. It's it, Well, it, it's, it's the single worst Dylan release, yeah. I would argue. <laughs> And the worst dead release. It was both of them at their complete low points was playing together. Yeah. But, but make sure to document it with a very iconic bit of album art and a really iconic sounding title. So a lot of young people getting into both bands buy it and are horrifically disappointed. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm in the studio with Rob Sheffield and Andy Green. We are talking about some of our favorite live albums of all time in the wake of the 50th anniversary of Live at Leeds, the obvious ones, James Brown, Live at the Apollo. Um, I love Aretha Franklin, Live at Fillmore West is an amazing album. Get Your Yaya's Out, which was I th- one of the first live albums I really got into. You know, and speaking of stage banter about, you know, you don't want my trousers to fall down, do you? I mean, that, right. that's like, what could be better? And then the crowd going, yes, we do. It's it, uh, quintessential. It's a strong live album, but for a band that's as good live as the Stones, they never really captured it on most of their live records. They have so many weak ones. Yeah. That one's great, though. Yeah, Did, that you- one is great. And also, like, the crowd, crowd like, the, the presence of the crowd is such a key thing in a live album. I think, at least once a week, I think about the guy in the crowd who yells, God damn, when Mick is singing Midnight Rambler and <laughs> yes. he slows down. He's like, you heard about the Boston? And the guy goes, God damn! Yeah. And it's like, wow, dude. Like, I wonder all the time about that guy. You know, like, all these characters, you know, the guy who yells for Omaha in Turn the Page. You know, the, the four kids holding up their Kiss banner on the back cover of Kiss Alive. Mm. You know? Or uh, On Time Fades Away. There's the guy that's giving the peace symbol in the front row, like like that guy. Totally. Like the live album, it makes the audience stars in that way. There's something beautiful about that. That Midnight Rambler on Get Your Eyes Out is so transcendent. Oh my God. Putting that version on Hot Rocks is the best decision Alan Klein ever made (laughs) in his life. tone everything is just like the and and really a, a great one of the things i realized talking to mick a couple years ago about the blues for that blues album they made was just i think his favorite thing in the entire world well beyond a few other things is uh <laughs> is blues harmonica he absolutely adores talking about and listening to and playing blues harmonica and he's actually quite good at it and that that song is a, is a great showcase for it i just never realized how seriously he took it. it's the only thing i think besides you know he practices it you know so uh, you know he loves to put on he put us on blues albums at home and plays along to them uh he's really into blues harp so that's a that's a great showcase you know listen uh, and you know nirvana unplugged uh you know if you want to go later the, there's so many albums that capture something live 
that you know and then and the all the all the good prison albums there's, there's a lot yeah. of good prison good albums are so good i love those when johnny cash falls in prison like says now i want to have a big hand for the warden it's like what are you trying to do dude i will say that but although bb uh, king in prison is great i prefer live at the regal and although it's a you know it's a little bit of a predictable choice but uh, if people who don't get you know as m- some people do not these days get guitar solos if you listen to the young women screaming at bb king's guitar and in a very responsive way they'll respond to one bit of vibrato or something i think that that makes a very good case for the guitar solo just a couple moments on that album but what other live albums mean something to uh, to to you guys I'm a big fan of the new wave live albums, like when Duran Duran made Arena or Depeche Mode made 101. They're very kind of like off-brand that way, but that's part of the, you know, the humor is you're hearing Depeche Mode doing these extremely synth-poppy songs and just Dave and Martin just saying like, hi, to the crowd in between songs is kind of beautiful. What other ones in that vein? Because that is a very unexplored uh, vein of of live albums for a lot of people. You know, Kraftwerk made a live album, which is kind of, you know, just a funny concept in itself. I think that's probably <laughs> never, why they did it. I never listened to that. But the um, you think about the, like the technological limitations of, you know, like Bobby Pritton was saying that the concision of having, you know, like six songs on live at Leeds is like part of why it batters you over the head, I think is how he put it. But think about how now the Grateful Dead had to compress their live albums onto two slabs of vinyl or three slabs of vinyl and now they just release entire years at a time <laughs> yeah i can like go obscure here a bit and say that cheap trick silver is better than budokan wow okay wow it's their tr- it, yeah it was some late 90s show it was the same four guys but they play better that kills me um there's this devo live album where they do the first album straight through in mm. like 2010 and it's just <laughs> killer that's that's my favorite, maybe. I play it all the time. That's really interesting. I'll, I'll put out a shout-out for Sinatra at the Sands, a little outside of our genre, but that that is a, it's with the, these Quincy Jones arrangements, and it's uh, it, it's also like a real audiophile album that people like in that way. That That's an incredible album. I, I, you know, a little, a little outside, uh, a little outside our, our boundaries, but that is one of listening. And then, you know, we won't even, we won't even do jazz, but uh, there, that's that's a, another another entire can of worms to open if you're talking about some of the greatest uh, live albums of all time. Time. And the Stooges. There's so many Stooges live albums that sound horrible, but you still get a sense of just <laughs> the amazing thing that you can barely hear happening. Yeah, totally. What's the infamous one? The, the Metal KO? Is yeah, that the one? yeah, that was one of their last shows in 74, where you hear bottles breaking on the stage <laughs> as they're being thrown by truckers at the band. Yeah, that's it, it's like the suicide one, like... Uh, 23 minutes in Brussels where it's just like the sound of a crowd riot. Something about like that, that kind of capturing, you know, capturing a moment in documentation. But something like Europe 72 or the Grateful Dead, who, you know, like a band that tried many times and, you know, most of the time failed to get their sound together in a studio and really had no interest in the studio. But, you know, their live albums just define them for their original first waves of fans. Yeah, there's obviously uh, dead fans who could uh, give us uh, 30 shows worth of stuff. I and mean, we'd be remiss not to mention them. But I, I guess it, it's like a lot of them aren't albums per se. They're just shows, which is other. Uh, well, they're your, tapes. Yeah, that, that, yes. You know, like the yeah. May 8, 77 at Cornell. You right. know, like yes. these tapes were more famous that's basically what built the dead's mystique. Yes, and that's a whole other thing and, and super 
relevant to the discussion and separate from the discussion and and, and worth the and same thing with fish honestly yeah so i say it's a great time to love live albums because bands are now going through their archives and they are fixing up all these famous bootlegs and you, you can get more great live vintage stuff now than you've ever been able to yeah and listen youtube opened up the door for any song that you might remember someone once played at a concert that the odds are fairly good that you can find you might find that actual show <laughs> like yeah, it's insane i spent so much money on bob dylan bootlegs back in the 90s it was 50 bucks a show now it's all free it's just incredible i've been in a big neil young kick i watched i watched an entire show of him playing with pearl jam without eddie in this sort of forgotten except among fans they, they did a european tour where pearl jam were just his backing band with no eddie and it was so awesome and somehow documented pro shot on youtube and never officially released there's so much stuff like that i think what's you know what's great about being here in 2020 is we have we have the entire 20th century <laughs> captured for us to go over and, and, and 20 years of a new century and it's easy to take all that for granted you've been listening to rolling stone music now i'm brian hyde i was in the studio with rob sheffield and andy green we'll be back next week here on sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast maybe leave us a nice review on itunes seriously that is really appreciated but as always thanks for listening and we will definitely see you next week Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.